0: Hello folks, welcome to the Whoop podcast. I'm your host Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. That's right. We build technology that's designed to help you improve your health and your performance. So it's a combination of hardware, and software, and analytics, and all rolled up in the Whoop membership. You can get 15% off that Whoop membership if you use the code Will WillAhmedWILLAHME D. we got a great episode for you today. Our VP of Performance, Kristen Holmes, returns for an inspiring, important conversation with Chris Mosier. Chris is a remarkable person, an elite athlete, and a true trailblazer in the world of sports. He was the first trans man to make a U.S. national team, a feat he accomplished in 2015 when he earned a spot on Team USA's sprint duathlon team. Before he could compete, Chris had to challenge the International Olympic Committee's policy on trans athletes. He served as the catalyst for the eventual change in IOC rules. He was the first trans athlete to ever compete at the Olympic trials in any sport and is now a six-time member of Team USA. Chris was the first trans athlete to be featured in his own Nike commercial. and was also the first trans athlete to appear in the ESPN body issue. Kristen Holmes and Chris discuss his long and difficult journey to finding himself, how he overcame too many strokes before launching his career as an elite runner, and how he's used WHOOP to improve his performance both athletically and in his everyday life. We should note that this conversation touches on some difficult themes such as depression, substance abuse, and trans youth suicide. Chris is very open about a lot of the struggles he has faced transitioning this is an eye-opening episode and i think you'll take a lot away from it without further ado here is chris
1: i am so excited to introduce chris Mosier to our listeners chris is an amazing athlete human being and whoop enthusiast chris also happens to be the first transgender athlete to represent the united states in international competition this is a conversation about chris's extraordinary life It is a conversation about the privileges of gender, rights, and class. It is a conversation about identity and change in both the literal and figurative sense. Most importantly, it is a conversation about compassion, understanding, and education. Regardless of what gender you identify as, there is so much to learn from Chris's experience of searching for and finding the core person and ultimately what that means to live an authentic life. On some level, we all need to be aware of the dangers of letting others define who we are. We take on a number of roles in our lifetime, but the process of discovering who we are is not just a matter of curiosity. It is a search for the principles by which all choices are to be made. Chris's journey gives us a rare opportunity to appreciate and learn from his process of discovery. Chris, we are so thrilled and thankful to have you here today to talk about your personal journey as a trans athlete competing at the wow. highest level and everything that has come and
2: comes with that. Wow. Thank you so much. That was an amazing introduction. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> I, I feel like you have already set the bar pretty high for me. So thank you for that.
1: Well, I just I just have so many questions to ask you. What struck me, you know, reading you know, everything that you've, you've done in your life, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is, wow, Chris has had a lot of firsts. <laughs> so um, yeah. are you just, you know, first transgender athlete to represent the United States international competition? I mean, that is just mind blowing. And then, you know, the first transgender athlete to be featured in a Nike commercial also like incredibly epic. So I guess, you know, there's just a lot of hype that comes with being first. I guess mm. I would love to start and, and for you to talk about, what is it like to kind of shoulder what must be an extraordinary level of advocacy, like how do you do that
2: it's really interesting uh and and humbling to hear it read back to me <laughs> because i don't um you know i don't really dwell on uh, the first and the and the things that have happened i mean obviously it comes up when i 'm doing my advocacy and when i'm doing speeches and whatnot but uh, in this, you know, in this case, it's, it is really interesting, um, really why I took on this role as advocate, which was, a, you know, it was a, a very clear, distinct choice that I made, because I knew in 2009, when I was still participating uh, with women, that when I transitioned, that I, that I would be the first, like, I just didn't see anybody who looked like me, who was participating in sports. And I didn't see any trans men competing with men, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and and not just, and not just compete. I wanted to compete at a high level. Like I didn't want to lose my, uh, competitiveness in order to be my authentic self, but I knew coming out that that would just be a one-time thing. Like when you come out on the internet, you are forever labeled the (laughs) transgender person. Right. So it was a real choice and, and you know it took me a long time to make that decision because I wasn't sure at that time what my life would look like uh, if I was out like would I be safe? Would I be even allowed to play because there weren't rules in, in different areas? Um, you know for my local races I had to out myself in order to participate in, in change categories and so there were a lot of steps along the way but all of it is driven by, by my deep desire to make it easier for everyone who comes after me.
1: Was there a moment where you maybe didn't know if you were actually going to be able to compete? And, and what was that and, and the, just the gravity of that, given that you're, you know, a huge part of your identity is just athlete, right? So h- how did you kind of reconcile, you know, that moment where you just didn't really know what the future was going to look like at all?
2: Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. I think so many people can relate into this regardless of your gender identity. I grew up playing sports and that's where I felt the most at home. I felt the most like myself. I made my friends, my family, my community was made through sports beginning at the age of four. Like I remember playing t-ball, making friends and all the way up through high school sports into college, even though I didn't play college sports specifically Uh, you know, intramural sports and the things that I, that I felt comfortable participating in as I sort of figured out my identity at that time, all of that, like sport was just so essential to me. I think, you know, before I actually decided to transition and to tell people there was a year and a half that I knew who I was deep down inside. And I was just terrified to come out and to start my transition because I didn't want to lose sport. Like it was that important to me. And so there was that idea of like, I'm not seeing people, no one in sport looks like me that I can, that I can see. I don't see policies on the websites or on, you know, talking to people. I don't even know if it's possible, if I am possible in sport to participate with men. And so, you know, really thinking about that was the first time that I, that I questioned, you know, whether or not I'd be able to play. And and how that feels is, you know, obviously it was so important to me that, it took up almost 18 months of my life of debating whether or not I would, would participate, like would uh, transition. And when I finally decided, you know, it was really because I thought like, I'm so uncomfortable in the rest of my life when I'm not participating in sports. And at that point, like it had just become so much for, for me to go in public and to have to use a women's restroom or to have somebody call me, she just became so almost debilitating for me. Um, That's when I knew that, regardless of what would happen in sport, even if I couldn't play anymore, I had to transition because I quite literally would not be here on this earth if I didn't. And so, if they talk about it being an enormous decision having a lot of weight, you know, it was really truly a matter of life and death for me. And so, um, you know, sport took us took a second place to my survival at that point.
1: That psychological weight that you describe, I how does that manifest in just your daily behaviors, your actions, your relationships, you know, how you connect your ability to be present. I mean, I just imagine that that impacts you at on, on such a profound level. Like how do you just deal with the day to day? Like, how did you? Yeah.
2: yeah. At that point, you know, I, I started to see a therapist talking about my gender identity and, and sort of exploring my options and, yeah. um, you know, so I was, I was talking to somebody about it. And as I would talk more and more about it, you know, therapy is amazing. Just as a side note, like (laughs) therapy is incredible. Um, just to have somebody, you know, don't do this alone. Right. Yeah. 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 And just like, you know, not even, not even say anything back to me just to be a space where I could just work it out. Right. And just like talk it through. And, and as I would talk, I would figure out more things about myself. What I always describe it as is i I literally felt like a video game character that I would leave my house on full power every day. <laughs> and, and when I would go out in the world, you know, somebody would call me she and like a little bit of power would go down or I'd have to use women's restroom or someone would question my gender and, you know, and things actually like as an adult in New York City in, in 2009, things like that were happening to me can, multiple times a week that someone would say, are you a guy or a girl or, you know, like make some sort of comment about my gender or my presentation in a way that was like really, um, it was threatening. It was scary. It didn't seem safe. And so, you know, every time that something like that would happen or I'd interact with somebody and and they'd say she or, you know, whatever, my power would go down. And by the end of the day, after all of those, you know, sort of microaggressions, the accumulation of those very small little things that didn't align with the way that I saw myself, or that I felt deep down inside. You know, I'd come home and just be a shell, and then have to recharge and do it again and again.
1: Yeah. And
2: you know, after uh, after time, it's like it's like having a rechargeable battery. You know, it's good for a while, and then it was like after a year, it doesn't hold the same charge anymore. I uh-huh. I really felt like that was the way that I that I was existing in the world, um, and you know how how I dealt with that was like it just came to a point where I, you know, that breaking point of being like, I I can't do this anymore. Like I actually can't, I can't picture myself being here for my next birthday. If something doesn't change.
1: You mentioned that you were four years old when you knew something was different. And I'd love for Mm -hmm. you to just kind of talk through that moment when you became aware and kind of what that felt like. And when you looked around and, and you didn't fit in and, I just I guess I just wonder like what that moment is like for for you when you're a child and you know how do you, you know, how do you wrap your brain around that can you
2: Yeah yeah I mean hindsight is amazing right like we can uh-huh. go back and say okay all of these things really line up and and tell me who I am but at the time i had no idea and and as as you said like how you you, you don't know who you are if you don't see a reflection of yourself right like yeah. if there's no example and you don't have the access to the terminology and the language to describe how you're feeling then you know how how do you process that at the age of 4 i certainly didn't have it even in high school i didn't have the language or the terminology to define who i was in a way that satisfied other people's curiosity Or accurately described who I now know myself to be. I distinctly remember being four years old on a hot summer day outside of Chicago. And I had, uh, we had a a pretty modest little house next to my cousins who we shared a driveway with. And the modest little house had this incredible backyard. So, you know, like a, a soccer field for a backyard that just was the central hub for all kids in the neighborhood to play. And so we were always playing sports. It was awesome. And I remember being four years old, running around with my shirt off with all of the kids in the neighborhood on a hot summer day. And my aunt pulled me around the back of the house and said, you can't run around like this. Little girls don't run around with their shirts off. You know, and being four years old and looking around, I'm like, well, my four-year-old body is the same as all these other four-year-old bodies. And I just didn't get it. But it was like the first thing that I remember about gender that people, that someone said, hey, you can't do that or you are doing this wrong. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. through my childhood, I can think of hundreds of examples of, you know, being told that I couldn't wear a baseball hat because little girls don't wear hats or I shouldn't skateboard because little girls don't do that. And, you know, all of this time I'm thinking, okay, well, you're telling me I'm a little girl and I like to do this. So, Little girls do skateboard, right? Like, like I don't understand why I'm not allowed to do this. And, um, you know, I I had a little brother, and we would ch- we would both play with the same toys, and it was you know wasn't an issue until adults in my life told me that it was an issue.
1: What is the message to
2: parents? Like, how do we get past this? It,
1: it does seem like such an antiquated way of just thinking. Generally, you know, knowing kind of mm-hmm. what we know about the spectrum of, of kind of where we land, you know, as in terms of identity, like, how do we, what do we need to do to kind of change our language as, as just as parents, you know, and as, you know, if you can think about it through that lens, you know, of just listeners who, you know, are interacting with kids and, and how, how do we, how do we change that?
2: There are so many factors that would make us or make a young person not want to disclose their identity, even if they know it deep down inside to be, you know, 100% true. We can just let people express themselves in the way that makes them feel most happy, most comfortable, and and isn't hurting anyone else. And I think that's the big thing is that for any parent who has a, a non-binary, so uh, a kid who doesn't identify as male or female, um, or a transgender kid, or somebody who is questioning their own gender identity, a lot of times we have two options. It's you either have a trans kid or you have a dead kid. And I don't say that to for shock value. I say that because the suicide statistics for the trans community are outrageous. And for many of us, you know, the, the thought crosses our minds that this world is not set up for us. So the best thing any parent could do uh, is to let their kid be who they are and to love them because they're your child and you want to see them happy and succeed in life.
1: The statistics around trans youth suicide are just sobering. I could, and I, Chris, I have to tell you, you know, literally just three weeks ago, a classmate of my children, 13 years old, took his life.
2: Oh my gosh. In my
1: town. So, you know, I think this, I think things happen for a reason, but the fact that I get to talk to you today is, um, is kind of therapeutic for me, frankly. Um, But I just, you know, these, I, I can only imagine the dark moments that you've had in your life and you've described some of them and you talked about seeing a therapist, you know, what are some other strategies, you know, what can folks do to, you know, if they think their child is at risk in some way and how do we even start, where do we start, <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to start to put ourselves on the other side of, of this horrible statistic. I and mean, it's just,
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a mental health expert and sure, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll say that first and foremost, but I have uh, definitely you know, had, had some dark moments myself and, and also have spoken to a lot of people who have had a lot of feelings and experiences and also uh, some who are not here with us today because of, because of suicide. And, you know, I think the, the biggest thing, as you mentioned is, is loving your child, right. And that we, I assume parents want their kids to succeed, to be happy, to, to support them, you know, and and that is no matter what, like they are still your kid, um, and so leaving space open for them to be themselves, as I said, but also sending those messages, even if uh, even if your kid hasn't come out to you, even if you know you're not sure that they that they are gay or they are trans or they are non-binary or you know. Yeah any of those things that just leaving the space open for them to explore that in a non-judgmental way and I think a way that parents can do that and you know here like something great that allies did for me as I was thinking about coming out was to give me hints that it'd be okay for me to talk about who I was with them mm-hmm. and so whether that was you know I had a supervisor who um, who asked me a, a Asked me a question actually about my name. So this is kind of fun. I punctuate my name when I type. I don't know why I've done it since sixth grade, since I started to, to type that I either write C-H-R-I-S period or my full name and a punctuation period at the end. And my new supervisor at my job before I transitioned asked me on like her you know seventh or eighth day on the job, hey, I noticed that you punctuate your name. Do you want me to punctuate your name when I when I write about you? And I was like, whoa wait a minute like that person is interested in this tiny you know tiny detail so they're paying attention and also they're trying to make me feel comfortable so i think that this person is a safe person for me to disclose my identity to and she was the first person that i came out to at work uh she i asked that she use they them pronouns or not use pronouns with me and she did so for an entire year before i came out to anybody else you know, but, but it was that little hint of, of like of saying something to me that made me know that that door was open. So I always tell like coaches or parents the way that you can do that is when you see a story about a gay athlete or a trans athlete, highlight that like you would any other athlete that's out there. When you see uh, you know issues of, of social justice come up and topics that are happening in current events, you see the WNBA players taking a, an, an incredible stance you know, this season, talk about that with your kid or with your players and, and open those doors to let them know that this is something that's on your mind and that it's okay for them to talk about it too. And I think that's really important. It's really key. Just letting people know sending those small signals that you are a person that they could talk to.
1: You know, I I do feel like the conversation is, is changing. I, I feel like people are more open, more tolerant. Do you feel that? Like, do you feel like the tides are kind of turning and that it's becoming more inclusive. And if that's, yes, that's great. But, you know, if, if, and I'm sure there's parts of it that aren't, you know, I guess, what are the pieces that are still like, where do we need to make the most change, I guess, like what still, you know, really bothers mm-hmm. you gets under your skin?
2: Yeah, you know, the best way that I could say it is it's like a wave, right? So when we have sure. a wave that crashes onto the shore, there's the pullback uh, you know, yeah. where, the, where the wave pulls back. And I think, unfortunately, I feel like right now we are in that pulling back part. When I came out in 2010, there were not really policies. And, you know, obviously through my own coming out process, which sparked some policies to be made, uh, challenging the International Olympic Committee, getting that policy changed. Um, fortunate thing about that one is when the IOC changed their policy, that has just such an incredible trickle down effect to all of the national governing bodies. And, you know, most, most organizations look to the Olympics as the gold standard, quote unquote, right. Um, Pun intended, I guess. And, you know, um, but, but that policy is in question now again, and uh, world athletics formerly IAAF changed their policy recently about participation of transgender women at the high school level, I've seen so many more states actually add policies in the last seven years, but unfortunately, last year in the, in the 2019 legislative session, we had about 37 anti-trans bills in 19 different states, and many of them targeted transgender athletes in high school. When we think about all of the benefits that people get from participating in sport you know, so much about what I love about myself, I learned through playing youth sports. Oh, gosh, and me I too. Think, yeah. I just Yeah. And there's yeah. It, like, I, <laughs> I'm <a> sure. Savior. <laughs> yeah. And, and not just a savior for, for us at that time period. But like, I think about, you know, my dedication, my goal setting, how I interact with other people, my yeah. ability to be a good teammate, to be a good leader, to be a good communicator. All of those came from my participation in sports. Maybe I would have learned them some other way, but what I know is that for me, sport was where I found so much of those those positive values and, and lessons that I got. And I think all people should have access to that. that, that when we think about specifically when we're talking about youth sports, you know, what is the goal? It's to create better people. It's to to provide young people opportunities to move their bodies, to have enriching experiences, to connect to their peers, and we also know, you know the positive physical, mental, so- social, and psychological benefits that go along with playing sport, better outcomes in school, you know, higher graduation rates, better grades, better organizational skills, so many different things that are affiliated with being active and being in sports. So you know, I think if we just think about how can we, instead of thinking about how we can exclude a certain group of people, how can we think about including all people? I want to get
1: into sports and, and just human physiology. And Chris, you've had some crazy health issues that I, I read about kind of toward the back end of your college career. I guess I just I'm so curious, number one, if you can just describe for our listeners kind of what happened to you and and how this has kind of impacted you as an individual and an, an athlete and and just your general lens with which you look at your you know think about your body and and your behaviors and and you know how you prepare for races, et cetera. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, so in my last year of of college, sorry, I should back up, i I did not choose to participate in college sports. I really wanted to play college basketball when it came oh. time to do that. I uh, just, you know in hindsight could say I, I didn't feel comfortable being on a women's team, having a coach yeah. say, Hey, ladies, let's go' I didn't know that at the time, but I backed away from that and just did everything that was co-ed that didn't require me to use a locker room that I could just kind of blend in with the other athletes on the team, and so I had just this really uh, incredible, you know, experience of of playing everything uh, for fun, and it was great. But um, you know, and I, you need to
1: talk about Wildcat Willie. Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay, so I did get my I did get my NCAA you division got your letter. letter. Yep in in cheerleading uh which is which is a hilarious joke for anybody who's met me and it it was because I was the college mascot and so this that is, like is a very af- right yeah it is a very <laughs> athletic position I will assure you actually oh um, yes there is no doubt about that yeah there's a, a lot of sweating that happens in there for sure um so I was the college mascot for a year and a half and that was my like really Close athletic experience, but in my in my real life, <laughs> when I was not behind the mask, uh, I was you know I was doing all of these other things, and um, I was also you know towards the end of my college career was not taking very good care of myself. Um, I was not sleeping very much, and I also uh, probably wasn't eating very well, and not not doing uh, a lot of self care, and so uh, you know for reasons that I still don't fully understand in my last year of school, I had too many strokes. And after that, um, you know, I had a, a really hard time, was plagued by migraine headaches, and uh, you know, just a, a lot of you know, confusion of, of not really knowing what's going on, trying to struggle my way through school. And also, you know, maybe a sense of not really caring that that was happening, to be honest, because I didn't really see a place for me in the world. Like I just, I didn't, I didn't think that I would reach my 25th birthday. You know, I, I didn't see myself getting married. I didn't see myself having a relationship and I certainly didn't see myself, you know, here sharing my story today. There was no future for me. It just, every day was just another day. And there was a, you know, sort of probably a sense that I didn't really care, like if I died. So there, there, you, that you happened out
1: to anyone at this point
2: I didn't even know I was trans at this point. To be totally honest, I, you know, there were I I didn't know I was trans. I was struggling with uh with my identity a little bit, but um, you know, it was more just feeling like people weren't seeing me how I saw myself, but I didn't even know I could be trans to be honest. Like the the trans people that I had seen in the media in these sort of negative representations on trashy TV shows like Jerry Springer and Maury Povich, like those people were not me. (laughs) So there are nothing about that. When I saw a trans person on these shows, I didn't go, Oh yeah, that like really resonates with me. That really is my experience. It didn't even cross my radar. And so I was just having a really tough time um, not being able to express why. And so After I had these two mini strokes, I really kind of got reset to not being able to run a mile, not, you know, really, really struggling to make a a recovery. And I saw a Chicago Marathon banner and that was really what uh, I said, I'm going to do that. My friends were like, okay, you can't run a mile. So good luck with that. And that was really the start of this athletic journey post-college. And, you know, part of it was reconnecting with myself and my body because I just loved sports when I was a kid. And I thought, okay, like that was one place where I really felt like myself, where I really felt a lot of joy. And this is what I need right now. Like I need to be myself. I need joy. And so I started to run for fitness, for trying to reconnect. I started to lift weights. And I think subconsciously I was doing it because I wanted to sort of manipulate my body before transition of being like, well, if I build my upper body a little bit, if I slim down, maybe people will call me he more than they'll call me she. And so like in hindsight again, I was doing all of these things. You know, I built my way up from a 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon, ultra marathon. And then thought, what's the next challenge? And I think that that, you know, that experience of like flatlining in an ER really gives me gave me a perspective of being like, wow, like bodies are incredible. How far can I push mine? You know, what am I capable of? If I can, if I can bounce back from that, what am I capable of? And so that was really, you know, after the I didn't want to run longer than 36 miles. (laughs) I was good there. So I bought a bike, taught myself how to swim, signed up for my first triathlon and then started on this journey of like sprint Olympic half Ironman, Ironman triathlon. And really just, you know, that constant push of being like, you know, what am I capable of? And as I transition now, what am I capable of? Because there's actually no expectations. There's no benchmarks. There's no comparison. Right. So what can I do? First first first. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So I mean it it blows my mind that you literally have no experience, had no experience running really. I mean other than you know sports obviously you're 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 running, but but mm-hmm. actual running and and cycling. Like so this literally just started
2: at this point in your career. Yeah, I mean it's pretty cool to think about that this is like we are capable of so much more than we, than we believe and that we That's live really. in ourselves. And, um, you know, certainly I'm not the, I'm definitely not the fastest athlete, uh, in, in the country by any means. I was second fastest in my group in internationally in for Americans, which was great. Um, but you know, I, I have still been a men's all American, a two-time national champion and have really just found my space to participate in a way that, um, really feels good to me. And, and to me, what feels good is doing the best that I can on the day. You can talk to some high achieving athletes who are just so dedicated and driven to um, excellence, to, to performance, to winning, that that's all I think about. Right. And I, I I know for myself, I love winning. I love doing well. I love setting PRs for myself, but part of, of what I know about myself as an athlete is that I also am doing this to give myself a platform to talk about, you know, trans inclusion in sport and in in the world. And so my participation in sport is really twofold. And I, I definitely feel that sense of drive for performance myself and, and for my community, you had mentioned like just the weight of, of doing this, of, of taking on the activist role. I really do feel like every time that I win, every time that I have a first, it's a, it's a win for the trans people. It's a win for the LGBTQ plus community when I, you know, go to the Olympic trials.
1: How would you describe, so you go from this state where you're really, really sick, you know, how did you start to tackle the behavior change that was required to really get yourself back on track? You know, it's not like you just, after have, having two strokes, you jump out of bed and all of a sudden you're running marathons. I mean, to actually change your behaviors in a way that that enables you to have those, you know, to, to run a marathon and, and to have the athletic career that, that you've had, like just explain I'd love to hear just what that journey, what that process was like for you to kind of get on track.
2: I, th- I think part of it was just the recognition of, I cannot continue to live my life like this. And part of that was wrapped up in my identity um, at, you know, and and not feeling like I could exist anymore with people calling me she and seeing me as, as a woman. Uh, yeah. And I never really identified as a woman, but I, that was the way I was perceived in the world um part of it was recogni- the recognition of just you know bad health choices of saying like i really am not sleeping much i had a lot of trouble with sleep in college um yeah. and then you know after my stroke having i had a really hard time with painkillers and um you know being in a place where i it, it wasn't consistent use but it was definitely abuse when i was taking them um and, and having just a, a great sense and awareness of like, I didn't drink all through high school into college. Um, that was never part of my experience. I had uh, alcoholism in my family and have just always been really, really acutely aware of of um, my own relationship to substances. And I was really, really troubled by the way that I was using painkillers um, when I did have them. And, you know, I can recognize that part of that was just like, I, I wasn't numbing my pain. I was numbing like my pain, right? Like, I was, numbing mean like my, my life pain. And, you know, I, I, think that one good thing about me is that I uh, when I set my mind to something, that is what I'm going to do. And so, you know, there was no, no rehab, no, uh, you know, program or anything. It was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And and just the commitment to keep my promise to myself of, you know, I have to stop this because I don't think I'm going to be able to exist much longer in the way that I'm going. And that's really been, you know, in terms of those health changes like that. And then athletically, what it really was, was wanting to prove people wrong. The very first uh, article that came out about me in the New York Times was amazing. It, It highlighted me as competing as a man in the New York City Triathlon after competing as a woman two years before. And you know, I was just so pumped it was a full page New York Times, you know, like sports section, awesome photo. Like just I was so pumped. And Uh, the article really painted me as a middle of the pack guy. And I was like, I remain deeply offended. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 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 And I and, and really that's that is. Every single day I woke up and thought about that and I thought I am not going to be outworked. Like there are things outside of my control. I cannot control who shows up to a race. I cannot control their gifts that they have athletically. What I can do is be the best most prepared version of myself. And so that is really what drove me, you know, to to try to be my best self showing up at my races.
1: Okay. So transitioning a little bit to whoop. um, I'm so curious, uh, you know, just being obviously an extraordinary athlete, like competing at the highest level, how do you use your data? You know, what's your kind of process and like, how does that inform your goals and how you think about your training and kind of your volume and your intensity? Um, Yeah. I just would love to hear just your general thoughts on, on kind of how you apply some of this data to kind of drive your
2: outcomes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The best uh, part of this has just been my sleep, uh, you know, and really trying to hit sleep numbers. Oh, it's yeah. like a challenge to myself of trying to get accurate uh, or trying to to get improved recovery. Um, so this morning we're, we're recording this on a Thursday and yeah. on Thursday mornings, I get up at four in the morning to go coach uh, and I have a very long day on Thursdays and I consistently mess up on Wednesday nights and just go to bed too late. And so every, every single week just consistently have, um, you know, I'm in the red on Thursdays and then sometimes on Fridays and seeing how my body recovers. I think, you know, trying to, um, have that benchmark for sleep has been the best uh, part of the whoop for me of, of figuring out you know what i actually need i'm astounded like it says that i need 10 hours or 10 hours and 4 minutes of sleep and you know just think about how important sleep is in in the whole process and how as yeah. athletes we're just so conditioned i guess uh, at least i was as a young person to say like more workout is better. Right. And we know that's not true, but you know, like as an endurance athlete, I go, okay, well I can run longer. I can do another strength session. I could do some, some mobility work. I could add another bike session, whatever. And you know, then we accumulate on all this fatigue without the appropriate amount of rest and recovery. And this has just been so instrumental in, in actually having a visual for that to say, okay, like, yeah. Okay. Like you need to get your butt to bed. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
1: Definitely. So it, what? It, what is like your average strain on it, I guess if you think about like your week, do you use whoop to kind of drive some of your decisions around volume intensity or do you just kind of like, Hey, I have this plan. I'm going to do it regardless of my capacity that day. Like how, how flexible, I guess, are you in your training?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm very flexible, especially right now. So in January, 2020, I was in the Olympic trials for racewalking.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, we another, didn't even talk about another that, first <laughs> triathlon, yeah. triathlon, uh, and we're going to race walk, which
2: is race walking.
1: frankly, race walking, like walking fast is hard.
2: So hard. It was so much. Right? Hard. Like,
1: <laughs> what is, okay. Let's talk
2: about, let's talk about race walking strain real quick. It's so hard. Uh, okay. it is, it's like, like that's the, the beginning of it is just, it's right, so right. hard. It's so much harder than running uh, for me. As, totally. as somebody who'd like, I could just space out on a run and oh just God. go knock out miles. Like it's my 100%. therapy, you know, um, and there's just so much that I have to think about in terms of technique. And also it's just a movement that my body is just not used to. So um, yeah, I've, I've found it to be an incredible challenge, especially as an adult beginner to say like, yeah. when was the last time you were a true beginner at something, right? And that you learned and you showed up at a race and you were the least experienced person there. And you know, it, it was—it's been a really exciting uh, process in the last year for me because I started it last summer. And so, you got to
1: the Olympic trials.
2: And I got to the Olympic trials. I mean, it was awesome. <laughs> I'm like, it's even possible? Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was amazing. great. Um, yeah, I mean, I just—if there's a will, there's a way—and I figured out how to get there. So, you know, I definitely like give so much respect uh, to the athletes who have been doing this their whole life. And yeah. you know, I got there. Uh, I I got there, but I definitely it wasn't pretty. (laughs) So (laughs) um so I've been I, I tore my meniscus and and got that diagnosis around the time of the Olympic trials. And so I pulled out of the Olympic trials with that injury. And you know, then COVID hit and I really had this uh it was kind of such a blessing to have this time with no races, with no uh, you know like deadline to say oh, I have to be better by world championship I have to be better so I can go to Switzerland and like the you know these sort of things so I've just had all of this time to just rehab and recover and and start my journey back on fitness my average strain is 20.2 isn't that wild that's
1: Gosh. I mean, that's why yeah. tells you, you need to spend 10 hours in bed.
2: I mean, that's exactly
1: <laughs>
2: cardiovascular load, Chris, 20.6, 19.1, 20.5, 19.8. Um, so yeah, like I, I have very heavy days and, uh, um, wow. I mean, coaching I is no joke.
1: I mean, I yeah. coached for years and, and yeah, I mean, I always had huge, um, kind of heart rate, you know, load data on those days you know, it's, uh, and then you top it off with obviously working out and, you know, just all the other life things. Um, yeah, you can get your strain up there pretty quick.
2: It's, it's really interesting though, for, you know, as an athlete who, who thinks about sessions being, you know, that hour and a half at the track, right. Or that hour on the mic on the bike. Yeah. You know, I think what this is really, what a blessing this is really exposed to me is that stress is stress. This is actually a tool where I can say, wow, like, I really didn't work out today and still my stress level is so high. My body is, is equating this to, you know, a, a track session. Do you use the journal? I do every day. Yes. Nice. Um, and what do you, so it. you
1: track CBD. I don't know track if we CBD. were recording when we were talking about that, but um, Chris, no. yeah, for the listeners. Um, yeah. Kind of talk about, about CBD. Cause I thought that was really interesting. I always am raving and talking about CBD on all the podcasts. So tell us your experience.
2: Yeah, I love it and I um you know I've been taking it for a while I take it consistently uh and there were definitely times when uh you know other things like I I didn't have it or I didn't take it then I and I logged it and what I've seen is that on the days that I take CBD I have on average 1 hour and 14 more minutes of sleep than if I don't and that like you know it's probably the most mind blowing statistic of everything that I've learned about myself and my training in my recovery through using whoop. Um, the monthly reports are just awesome to, to, to look at and do the comparison of like how my training has gone that month, how I felt uh, is, are there any differences?
1: Yeah. It, the, the monthly performance assessment is like, it, it's quite magical. You know, as you start to accumulate enough data, you know, we can start to just draw these like nice little associations and, I always think about it as, you know, you've got certain behaviors that are like your anchors. You know, if you do this one behavior, it kind of sets you off in a good path to do a whole host of other behaviors. But the data has been so helpful to kind of help me identify what are those core behaviors, like behavioral anchors that are going to really position me to kind of put myself in in the best possible, you know, state to be able to adapt and, and activate in a way that's that's really optimal
2: i'm actually upset when my battery dies like i i had a trip recently and i didn't bring my charger and i was like oh no three days of data and i was on the road and i'd like really wanted to see <laughs> yeah so like what's happening are, with yeah when
1: you're traveling yeah traveling yeah. has like a such a enormous impact uh, obviously when you're crossing time zones it's it's even worse okay so i have a couple other just well not not random questions but what do you What do you wish everyone knew about being trans and an athlete?
2: Yeah, that there's not just one way to be a trans person uh, just as there's not just one way to be a man, there's not just one way to be a woman. there's not just one way to identify as a trans person and in sport, that really makes a difference because every person's process is so individual uh, yeah. it's so personal and I am a representation of our community, but I'm not a representation of every trans man, of every trans athlete, that I'm just a case study of one at the end of the day. But, um, you know, that trans people are possible in sport. If
1: you had to give one book to someone as a gift, what would you give
2: to them? The Champion's Mind. If I'm uh, going a sports direction, I actually had three books immediately popped into my mind. Okay, um, share share. Okay, so uh The Champion's Mind is the book that I listen to. Um I've read it, but I also listen to the audio version uh before every single race that I do now since I've actually gotten the book. I wow. play this book just on repeat on my way to the race. Uh you know, if I'm driving to the to the state that the race is in or yeah. on a plane, it is just to me it's just so grounding and and such a good reminder. Um so, and I recommend it to all of my athletes. Uh, I just love that book. I love it. Um, the second is my favorite book from when I was a kid, which is the autobiography of Malcolm X. I, oh, I read yes. it when I was ten years old, uh, like way above my my reading level. But uh, and I love absolutely love that book. And then The Alchemist is uh, oh, another yes. one of my absolute favorites of of just possibility and uh, self confidence and the hero's journey.
1: That's great. I, I definitely have never read the champion's mind. Um, so i Oh
2: put it on your list. Put oh it on yeah. No, list. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm all over that. I can't wait. So Tim Ferriss always asks this question and I'm like, Oh, such a great question. So if you could put kind of one thing on a billboard that, you know, millions of folks would see,
2: what would it be right now? It would be trans girls are girls just, you know, just in terms of our, of our advocacy, um, yeah. you know, piece here. Um, I think that's such a, you know, such an important um, thing for people to know in terms of this moment. Um, My, actually, probably what it would be is uh, every day you have a shot at making history. I have had a poster of this since I was 14 years old. I put it on my wall, and it it went to college with me. It has gone to every home with me, and it is framed right next to my bike, right here, right underneath my All American plaque. Uh, That every day you have a shot at making history. It's just the that like you can do anything and and you could you could change the course of the entire world on any given day
1: i mean you're the embodiment of that right you're right i mean to your earlier point like there's like it's just like what our body can do and when we don't put limitations on ourselves
2: and when others don't put limitations on us it's truly mind-blowing what i tell every athlete that i meet every person you know that i'm talking to that i'm trying to inspire and what I think would be a really great message for people is, you know, to your point about what the human body can do, never limit your own greatness to make other people feel more comfortable. We all just need that message, that reminder, um, because so many people and, you know, people in the queer community, um, you know, gay athletes, and I think just all women have been taught to make themselves smaller to make other people feel more comfortable and, you know, really like just, if we all just, uh, you know, lived our lives to the to the potential of our own greatness, what an incredible gift that would be to other people.
1: I can't thank you enough, Chris, for just your generosity and just your willingness to share and educate. This is really a, just a wonderful, for me, uh, just a wonderful discussion. So thank you. Um, where thank you. is the best place for folks to find you?
2: So I live on Instagram at the Chris Mosier and also on Twitter at the Chris Mosier.
1: Well, the world's lucky to have you, uh, Chris. Thank you, Thank you so you, much um, for everything that you are doing and have
0: done. Thank you. This is awesome. Thanks to Chris for coming on the Whoop podcast. Thank you all for listening. A reminder, you can use the code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, to get 15% off a Whoop membership. Also, you can check us out on social, at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. Stay healthy, folks. Stay in the green.